Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Aubrey Matron books of our favorite novelist, Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And Ian. As we plunge ahead, Ian, bring us up to date. Where were we and where are we headed? We are in the nutmeg of consolation, Mike. Um, last time, it had all kicked off. It all got violent last time. There was this great big pitched battle between the ship's company of the Dayan in, in camp ashore there and 300 Dayak and Malay pirates that had been brought back by this lady Kessa Garan. Put a little pin in her name for later on. The camp breastworks had helped them out, so had some wise use of the remaining powder and shot. The marine officer Welby's battle experience and Jack's leadership had saved them. And they'd sank the retreating prower just as the attackers had burned the schooner. Oh, so a big set of swings and roundabouts there. Supplies are running low. And the day before St. Famine's Day, Stephen had helped the young son of the crew of a Batavia junk stopping for bird's nest. And Stephen had been hoping that the junk's owner, a gentleman called Lee Paul, would take them back to Batavia. At this time, Mike... We're off on our journey again to Batavia. Our heroes and the treaty continue to face piratical dangers as they head for Batavia. We revisit one of our favourite tropes, an O'Brien Scottish brogue, and we see an old friend from the Sultan's court. There's news about the French frigate. There's news about how Stephen's negotiations are continuing. And there's news of a ship on the horizon and Jack picks an interesting name for her. Oh, thanks, Ian. Great, great summary there. Well, O'Brien starts the chapter by reminding us a little bit of backstory to give us a little of the 13-gun salute again, that Fox and his entire suite were lost on the pinnace in the typhoon while attempting to take the treaty back to Batavia and ultimately back to England. Edwards, Fox's secretary and the sole remaining member of the mission, he says, has sealed the remaining copy of the treaty in linen and wax and carries it day and night by his bosom. So close to his heart, literally, and I think metaphorically in terms of, of Edwards putting his hopes on it. Edwards is really counting that delivering this treaty personally to the ministry may secure him at least some small position in government, not Fox's knighthood or baronetcy, but you know, just a little job somewhere. Yeah. But unlike Stephen, he doesn't realize that he's one of the many people that Fox spoke ill of in Fox's accompanying letter, which is in there with the treaty. Edwards has not read that. Stephen has. Yeah. And, and there, there was some little, the name of some little job that he hoped to pick up, the harbinger of the Board of Green Cloth, which sounds agreeably kind of Ruritanian. I, th I think the Board of Green, Green Cloth was a real thing. I've no idea what a harbinger would have done. But it gave you this nice sense of, you know, these kind of sinecure posts, these little cozy corners of the administration kept aside for people who are in favor. Ah, not, not that anything like that would happen these days. Right. Anyhow, they're, they're standing on the stern of Lipo's junk. That's Edwards and Stephen standing together. They're worried about a small proa, one of these low native crafts that's coming up behind them, seeming like a threat to the treaty. And they talk about how this treaty's had a pretty tough journey. It, it might even be cursed in some way. Stephen points out, as he often does, downplaying nautical danger. He says, it's only a small prower. Jack, he says, he's going to assemble Welby and the Marines if it gets any closer. And he has assurances from Mai Mai, that's the youngest daughter of Lipo, that this is an unimportant pirate, that they're going to likely leave the waters since 
this is the territory of Juan Da, which is Stephen's correspondent back in Batavia. And Juan Da himself usually patrols them and collects tributes when he's not hunting or at the Sultan's palace. So still, you know, facing up to an enemy in foreign waters, we never quite know how this is going to work out. The Marines come up and line the side. The junk ports its helm to show the strength of the Marines on the side there and show the general strength and capability of the ship. And the pirates in the proa race away at the sight of the Marines and, of course, of the two carronades that are set up there on the deck. And we get a little sense of how, to a British naval mind, this junk, even though it's been their salvation, is a disorderly and strange planet for them to be on. He says it took ages to get the Marines up. There are so many different holds. All the uniforms are in different compartments. And Lieutenant Fielding reports that they haven't even finished looking through the ship. Different officers have found even more holds. And the midshipmen say, this: the number of holds that we have here is going to be in double digits, and we don't know where all of our stuff is. And Stephen, who secretly must be really delighted to have a, a point of moral nautical advantage over the sailors here, asks Mai Mai to show the gentleman each of the ship's holds, saying that they'll reward her with the ship's biscuit, which for some reason is something that these Chinese children have grown to love. And they can't believe that the seamen, the British seamen, get through a pound of this ship's biscuit every day. Jack notes that if the Diane had the junk's bulkheads, the, the internal walls that separate all these holds from one another, she'd still be swimming. As a, a little lesson for contemporary naval architecture there, compartmented design in commercial ships wasn't a thing in 1912 when the Titanic sank, and it's it's only partly a, a thing in commercial ship design now. It's a, absolutely a thing in, in warship design that has been since the late 19th century. Admiring the strength of the junk, Jack says that this surpasses even what Seppings could provide. And Seppings being a naval architect who'd experimented with diagonal trusses to withstand the shear forces in the uh, in the side of a ship. Famous ship, the Cutty Sark, that's on display in Greenwich. That generation of clippers, much, much later in history, had diagonal bracing in the skin. That was what made them stiff and fast. Ah, nice. But Seppings was the guy for this innovation of diagonal bracing. And uh, Jack is noticing that the junk has kind of got that in its own country-born Chinese way and is technically in some ways ahead of what the British Navy's got here. We switch back to Stephen's point of view. He's going to change the dressing on Li Po's son, the young boy that essentially bought them their passage on this junk. And he's going to change what O'Brien calls the startlingly purple bomb. So Matron has really been playing this thing up big here. And when he gets to the, the Orlop to do this, he's surprised to find Macmillan drunk. Macmillan, who, who usually is a little quiet, doesn't drink very much. And, and Stephen kind of puts it down to him being a victim of the junk's much stronger Arak, which is now being used to make the grog. Probably Macmillan you know, had his usual less than a uh, full dose, but uh, the stuff's so much stronger here. Um, and, and even though he's drunk, his bandages are still wrapped perfectly neat, but he slipped from his neutral English of every day back into his native Scottish. <laughs> Mike, I'm going to try and read this more or less phonetically, and I'm, I'm going to lapse into a very bad kind of morning side accent because I won't be able to help myself. O'Brien's really having fun with the phoneticization of the accent here, like he always does with Scottish people. Right. I lay awake the nicht, he observed, and on a sudden it came to me why you had cracked your wee bairn's leg. Hey, hey, you must have thought me a pure, slow-witted gawk, he says. 
Stephen, you must have thought me a poor, slow-witted something or other. Stephen points out a birthmark on the boy's leg that they have to cauterize against future trouble, which is, you know, a very, very tiny excuse of a sliver of a pretext of a mm, half of a reason for doing all of this elaborate wound dressing to the boy's leg. And Macmillan kind of plays along. He says, oh, yeah, my wife had the same. And this opens up a whole other round of conversation between Macmillan and Stephen. Stephen says, I didn't realize you were married. And later, in the same thick brogue, Macmillan confesses to Stephen that he'd always thought a wife was someone you could tell your dreams to. And very quickly, we get into this very dark description, this flashback into Macmillan's life. He said his wife finally one day threw his dinner in his face and told him, the hell with your focket dreamings, walked out of the door and left him. And Mike, we, we get this very, very awkward tale by metaphor and illusion and simile here of what Macmillan's trouble was. He said when he'd point the pistol with a certain triumph, the barrel would just droop. And Mike, Stephen seems doomed to hear lots of these kind of grim genitourinary psychosexual tales from all the people that he consults with. It makes my compassion and my ability to feel for some of the medicos out there. They have to listen to all these tales all the time here. Yeah, yeah. And people wrestling for exactly by means of what euphemism shall I tell the doctor that there's no lead in the pencil these days. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, Stephen heads to dinner with Jack. I think he hears the sound for dinner and says, you know, Jack's very punctual. I, I think he's ready to get out from under McMillan there. And they eat the remains of the Babarusa, some cooked in the English style. And now that they're on the junk, some cooked in the Chinese style. And they have the best bird's nest soup that anybody below the rank of emperor would ever taste. So mm. this is there's some advantages here. And Ahmed reports back. They'd ask him why the ship seemed to be stopping. And he comes back in and says it's stopping to let a pirate twice the size of their ship, the junk, come aboard. And that Lipo had told him nothing would be more fatal than trying to escape. So, you know, here we are back with that cursed piratical foreboding that we've had here. Yeah. And this is not just a little, little low country pro. This sounds like it's some significant force here. And right, right again, we're in danger. Well, on deck, Edwards worries that they're out of the frying pan and into the fire. And Stephen, who was you know, sometimes not so empathetic or emotionally attuned, uh, corrects him and says, well, actually, you would have to say into the gridiron, not the frying pan, since the Malays always grill their Christian prisoners, at least the ones they don't crucify. <laughs> I think Edwards is probably shrinking back pretty badly here. And, and Edwards you know, confesses that if it weren't for the treaty he's holding on to right now, he would not feel nearly as much inclination to renounce his faith at this point. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I would never renounce my faith, but I've got to get this tree there. So if they're going to ask us, I might have to tell them, right? Yeah. Ouch. Uh, it's funny. And, and we're with Edwards and Stephen speculating about what fate really might await them. Being barbecued as a Christian sounds like a bad way to end your day. The pirate chief comes aboard with his two lieutenants. Uh, there are deep and reverential bows from Lipo and his mates. The chief of the boarding party stares around at the English seamen, at the marines in their ratty old shirts and trousers, at the officers, and then at Stephen. And Mike, now we get the reveal. His face, the chief's face, changes to candid delight, and he hurries over, hand outstretched. Stephen says, one darn idea. How do you do? 
Yay. Yes. <laughs> so, these are piratical, rapacious, grasping, conniving, high seas robbers. The good news is they're our rapacious, grasping rapscallions. So it's all going to be okay. Wanda invites Stephen and Captain Aubrey to come and drink some coffee aboard his vessel while their lieutenants finish their business. Wandar, we remember, is the Sultan's official who had welcomed the Diane into Pula Prabang and worked closely with Stephen. His lieutenants collect their toll because, like we say, they're still rapacious, piratical bastards. It's just that they're, they're on our side, more or less. They collect their silver coins in toll quickly. And meanwhile, Wandar tells Stephen about this French frigate, the Cornelie, that Jack had been to take a little, a little look at back towards the end of uh, 13 Gun Salute. The Connelly is now ready to leave Polo Prabang and the French are making frantic attempts to obtain enough stores. And we get a story about all the, the stuff that they're selling and the lengths to which they're trying to pledge a bit of credit. Stephen leans over to Jack and tells him about the invitation to the other ship, suggests that he, Stephen, would go alone because it'll save some time and Jack would otherwise just have to sit there listening to a load of long foreign talk. And back on the ship, Wandar tells Stephen that the Cornelie is planning to sail the Salibabu Passage if they can lay in enough supplies to get her there. There's no money, there's no credit. They've traded six nine-pounders, some grape and round shot, 27 muskets, two cables, one bower anchor, and a kedge, all for food. This is just to get them found in stuff to eat and drink on the journey. Mostly Sago, so they're not really pushing out the boat with their fancy cabin stores here. It's just starch, basically. And Wandar says that they'll be sick of Sago before they reach the passage. And uh, Stephen gets a chance to weigh in here on how likely he thinks this is all to come off. Stephen says that, you know, he can't believe that the French are just going to sail with that to eat. You know, surely they're going to get some additional stores. And Wanda says they might if they come upon a weaker ship. Basically, they're not going to get any more in Pula Prabang, but, you know, they may attack a weaker ship, but they lack gunpowder. And then he explains some more. The frigate's officers have given up all their jewelry and silver to make an offer to buy as many half barrels of gunpowder as the Sultan will sell them. And Stephen notes that the Sultan in, in that island controls all the gunpowder except that of the Chinese firework makers. And Wanda says, you know, the French may have bought a little bit from them. Don't know. And Stephen asks, you know, what's the Sultan going to do? Wanda says the Sultan is really busy. His wife's very, very pregnant. He has a new concubine and he's staying busy with his concubine and leaving everything up to his vizier in terms of making this decision. Ah, so Wanda and Stephen, we would hunted together. We remember yeah. he Stephen by the goodwill of the council members with his drafts on Xiao Yan. You know, Stephen pulls out one of Xiao Yan's notes, gives it to Wanda, and asks him to kindly see if this will persuade the vizier not to sell the powder to the French. Because after all, you know, if they get powder, they may be upset about the treaty. They may bombard Brabang in revenge. They may try to steal the English subsidy, all the gold that the English yeah. left, strip the royal treasury, violate the concubines. And I think Stephen's laying it on pretty thick here. But you know, Stephen kind of closes off in in, in a nice Muslim, uh, you know, wrapping it tightly in a package. She says, besides, whatever happens to the French in the remote Salababu Passage, the route that Wanda has told him the French will be taking, yep. is no concern to Wanda. After all, <laughs> what is written is written. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> 
I love is kind of very discreet. No, no, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Inscrutable. Yeah, who knows what terrible things might happen in the middle of the night. Right. <laughs> a little, little bit of B-movie kind of menacing there. Yeah, shame that this place burned out. Yeah, exactly. smoke I smell? Right. <laughs> well, Wanda agrees with the idea of what's written is written, but still doesn't seem wholly convinced that this is all either a good idea or feasible. But anyway, he's, uh, he's going to do his best. After several cups of coffee and talk of a honey bear, which relates to Wanda's hunting story with Stephen on the night of the first banquet, Stephen asks if Wanda remembers Mr. Fox's Manton rifle. And Manton was a, a real gunsmith, very famous gunsmith back in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. Joe Manton more or less invented sport shooting. Flintlocks by Manton are still some of the most sought after designs of the flintlock age today. So this is a real reference point for us. Wanda asks if Stephen means the gun that had a swan's head on the lock. And this is a very delicate little moment. Stephen has decided he's chosen his way for a bit of further persuasion of Wanda. And Stephen says, yes, it's the one with the swan's head on. He says, now it's mine. And I'd like you, Wanda, to do me the honor of accepting it as a keepsake. And Stephen promises to send this gun over with Wanda's boat crew since he has to leave now. Oh, I might get it but, but very nicely played by Stephen. I mean, we don't get much of the detail, but it just seems like a couple of little flickers of doubt in Wanda's mind, and Stephen's just dropped in exactly the right little inducements here to smooth the way. Right. Oh, I, I did love it as well, too. What a, what a savvy negotiator he is, and, and a guy who knows how to lubricate the social wheels here. Yeah. You know, and, and find people's weaknesses. And we have one of these classic O'Brien changes of point of view here. All of a sudden, Stephen is is leaving Wanda's ship. And the next thing you know, uh, we're in a paragraph where Governor Raffles' secretary tells him that a big local junk has come in loaded with distressed British seamen. And and they're thinking they must belong to a, a Mauritius privateer that had just been in dock there about a month ago. And Raffles suggests that they ask a major if they can use the cavalry barracks to, to house these people. But Raffles is drawing these orchids. And 19 orchids later, the secretary comes back and says, there's a medical man, unshaven with no wig from the junk, who insists on seeing you. Mm-hmm. Raffles says, is his name Maturin? But <laughs> <laughs> I love this, how from all the world over with, with very little context, but a medical man unshaven in no wig. Oh, it must be yeah. Stephen, right? <laughs> well, the, the secretary says he did not catch his name. He's small, pale, slight, ill looking, you know, and, and I kind of wondered reading this at Paul Bettany had, had kind of taken this, you know, and said, and you yeah. want me to play him? Is that it? Right. But Raffles says, you know, send him in and cancel my other appointment. So I love this relationship that Stephen has with Raffles. Stephen walks in, they greet each other warmly. And Raffles says, you know, we've really given you up for lost. Ask how he is. Stephen says he's fine, just a little ruffled. And O'Brien tells us that Stephen actually looks a little bit better than he usually does. So it's great. Wow. Description, right? (laughs) Oh, no. Well, we get another little bit of plot catch-up here in the conversation between Stephen and Raffles. Stephen tells Raffles what's happened with the treaty, describes the way that the Diane and Fox had survived or not survived the big uh, monsoon. But he asks if there has been any word then from Fox's group, and there's been none. Stephen gives Raffles the copy of the treaty, 
and begins to introduce it a little bit and put some context around it and says that Stephen hands over the copy of the treaty to Raffles and uh, fills him in on some of the context. He says, Edwards had hoped to bring the treaty himself, but he's fallen ill with dysentery and had begged Stephen to deliver it with his respectful compliments so that no time could be lost. And respectful compliments in this, ta- in this case means scruffy Stephen without a wig. Raffles quickly reads through the treaty, is delighted by the terms, but notes this accompanying letter, this covering letter that Fox has written. And Stephen has, in his spy role, taken the chance to read it. He acknowledges that to Raffles and says, I did read it, tells the reason why. Raffles is glad that Fox hadn't betrayed Stephen's intelligence role and calls the letter, more generally, a shockingly discreditable piece of invective. And we'd been taught, I think, in the previous book to to fear what was going to be said in this dispatch. It's good news, I think, for us that Raffles sees it for what it is, but we're all sat there thinking, yeah, this dispatch is going to find its way back to the Foreign Office, to the Ministry in London. And there's every chance that if any of this is taken as anything like valid, then that means bad news for poor old Edwards. Raffles says this is really puzzling, given what he knows of Fox. He says that Fox had been excellent company as a young man, but Raffles had seen this particular kind of breakdown coming in his character for years. Stephen says that he'd been tempted to suppress the letter and Raffles asks if Edwards had read it and Stephen assures him that he has not. He goes on to describe how Edwards has built all his dreams for future success on being the person delivering the treaty and being around for anything that goes along with that in Whitehall. Raffles says the letter would blast fox's reputation if it became public so it's, it's a problem actually not only for edwards but for fox himself and that all of fox's friends would regret the publication of this letter and he calls out to his wife raffles calls out to mrs raffles mentioning that here's dr maturin back from his travels and, and Mike, this is this is a chance for Stephen to try and engage a bit more with polite society here yeah well, you know, Stephen apologizes for his appearance to Mrs. Raffles, said he had to evade Captain Aubrey, who said, you know, Stephen could not come ashore because he would bring disgrace to the service, that Aubrey and the rest of the officers are certainly not going to appear until they're fit for an admiral's inspection. But Stephen knew that it was going to take an infinite amount of time for everybody to find everything in all the junk's compartments, and that, you know, they've been traveling on this junk full of ore, so stuff was dirty, and they'd want to clean it and everything. So, you know, Stephen offers the captain's best compliments, and uh, but you know he says I, I had to come ashore to get this stuff done. And Mrs. Raffles asks Doctor Matron to come with the captain and all the officers to please dine that afternoon. So I think she's going to send a note off, but is also extending the invitation to Stephen here. Raffles, now that Mrs. Raffles is gone. Ask Stephen, you know, how did you get this treaty? He's still so blown away by, you know, it's kind of like the, the ministry couldn't have written it better. And Stephen said, well, there was the subsidy and Mr. Fox's arguments, but confides in him that mostly it was because of Raffles Banker and you know Van Buren had introduced him to all the proper intermediaries to get the goodwill of a majority of the council. So, you know, essentially yeah. we bought them off and we had Van Buren's intelligence and we had, you know, Raffles setting him up with the money man that really worked out there. Now, Raffles says, you know, gosh, I hope you know that the government is not going to refund more than one-tenth of what you spent. So apparently Stephen funded a lot of the subsidy. And he said, and they'll only do that after seven years of impertinent, repetitious questioning. 
Yeah. And Stephen says, you know, well, it's all an indulgent that he allowed himself partially, you know, for the good of the cause and partially to undermine Ledward and his friend. And then Stephen explains what happened to Ledward and Ray. And Stephen says, besides, you know, since Ledward had gambled away so much of the French subsidy, the indulgence was not nearly as costly as it might have been. So he's got so much money left over, he'd like to indulge in another something, a little something, a tolerable merchantman approved for swift sailing. And Stephen tells Raffles that, as, as you recall, we've got a rendezvous and the possibility of meeting the French frigate on the way to this rendezvous. So I think he's kind of trying to open up the door here to Raffles about getting them a ship and as quickly yeah. as possible. So he's almost channeling the spirit of Jack Aubrey here. He, he's, he's almost saying the words, there's not a moment to lose. <laughs> right, right. And Raffles says, well, this particular task that you set yourself calls for a considerable ship and a considerable outlay. And Stephen says, well, the surplus that I have with Xiao Yan is not inconsiderable, and he can call on London if he needs to, and notes that at this moment of mentioning the banking system in London, Raffles looks a little bit uneasy. And Raffles explains that all the mail for Aubrey and Masterin must have gone to New South Wales because, therefore, Stephen and Jack are behind on the news. He says Stephen told him that he'd changed banks to Smith and Clowers, and Stephen says, yes, that's right, I did. Raffles regrets to tell him. We heard this in rumour before, but now we have it with authority, that Smith and Clowers has suspended payment. Stephen's bank is broke, and he won't be able to draw on them. And... It's a really, really poignant moment. On the one hand, this is just kind of dropped in there. There's no big gasp. There's no big double take. But this is Stephen's financial world apparently shifting underneath him. And what makes Stephen's recollection even more kind of bitter and, and immediate is that he had been working with his lawyer to draft a letter and a power of attorney addressed to Sir Joseph Blaine, who was going to be the executor of Stephen's will, and that that document had included the order to trans transfer this account. Stephen's lawyer had given Stephen all these instructions to say, do this in your own hand and get them to Sir Joseph. And that if he did all this, then all of these, uh, all of these arrangements would be put in place with no way a lawyer can get around them. So th this is a real setback for Stephen. Like we say, he's ruined. But Raffles does kind of go on and, and, and raise the mood a tiny bit. He says, I have some less dismal tidings. They had just weighed, that is to say, had just sunk and then refloated a 20-gun Dutch ship. It sunk it on purpose uh, several months ago to get rid of infection. It, it sounds like they regard this sinking a ship to sterilize it as as a totally natural thing. It was news to me, Mike. But right, sounds... I've never heard of it. Fascinating to me as well. Yeah, but it seems like it was a real thing. She's now as tight and as trim as on her first day, and she's free from whatever infection had been aboard. She's not big enough to attack the Cornelie, but she could get them to their rendezvous. You astonish me, Governor. I am amazed, happily amazed, said Stephen. I am glad of that, said Raffles, looking at him doubtfully. Oh. And good, good old Raffles can tell that behind the happy amazement, Stephen's clearly now thinking, what the heck am I going to do without my fortune? And what the heck is my wife and my child going to do without my fortune? And what about all my plans for more or less privately funded espionage and suborning Napoleon now that I've lost my fortune? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really handed to Stephen for being able to, you know, in this moment, 
react to Raffles' less dismal news yeah. rather than I, I don't think I would have handled it quite that well. I'd, I, as a matter of fact, I, you know, I think I've got to take a moment here yeah. <laughs> and kind of get over Stephen losing this fortune and the possibility that the Dianes and Jack and Stephen may have a new ship here. Yeah. So while we figure out what to make of all of this bad news, Mike, we should probably go and grab ourselves a glass of something sustaining. What do you say? Oh, I think it's a great idea. Very good. We'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovershole. Welcome back from the break. I hope you haven't had any bad news as Stephen just had, and that it's only good news like the news of the ship. And Stephen's kind of building upon that news. And he says, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to go tell Aubrey our good fortune. And he says that the captain's still in a somber mood because the Dyaks killed his purser and his Clark and when they attacked the camp. And he's worried because he has to present his books to the senior naval officer here. And Ravel says, hold on a minute. What do you mean, Dyak's attacking your camp? You didn't tell me about any of that. And Stephen says, oh, yeah, you know, sorry. And he goes on and says, let me tell you a little bit, but but Jack will tell it better at dinner since he, uh, Stephen's word, leapt about the field of blood as if it were his native heath. And <laughs> Stephen says to Raffles, you know, do you, do you know a tiger's coughing roar? Raffles says, of course. And he says, well, that's the sound that Aubrey makes in battle. So maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, we can check through a little social media and see if we can find a tiger's coughing roar to put out there on the socials. It's, it's a very poetic way to talk about Jack Aubrey at battle anyway. Right, right. <sighs> so now we're at the point where it's time for Stephen to go back to the ship. And Raffles says that my barge is there for you. They'll take you back. He also wants Aubrey to know unofficially that the closest senior naval officer to Batavia is in Colombo in Sri Lanka, which in the, in the jet age is four and a half hours flight time away, which means in the age of sail, it's many, many days a week sail away. And in his experience, like Raffles' experience, the ship's books and papers being lost completely in a wreck or enemy action is no problem. Whereas a missing docket or receipt or signature in one of many volumes can lead to years of correspondence and unsettled accounts. And I love how pragmatic Raffles is being in helping take care of Fox's letter and take care of Jack's books. He's mentioned a couple of times all the kind of caviling and sniping that can go on about getting accounts settled and getting reimbursement. The, the, the real Raffles had exactly some of these problems, I think. And when he went back to the, uh, to the UK at the end of his time in the Far East, he was deeply, deeply in debt and stayed so for quite some time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Anyhow, on the way to the barge, Stephen asks the governor's coxswain to stop at a toy shop so he can buy dolls for the three little girls. These are the three girls that he befriended, the daughters of Li Po, the sisters of the little boy with a broken leg. The coxswain wanders aloud to himself what a Chinese girl might make of a Dutch doll, which is what Stephen's about to go and shop for. They do find the shop. Stephen buys three of the least disagreeable pieces of the year-out-of-date Paris fashions that they have in stock. He agrees to this outrageous price, half a Joe, half a Johannes apiece. And in some bizarre piece of bargaining here, the, the shopkeeper woman throws in three chamber pots because Stephen had paid the first price and hadn't haggled. 
Mike, I'm not sure where we're going to end up with the chamber pots, but for now, that's that's Stephen's little extra bit of bit of buckshe that he's got from this transaction here. Yeah, you you kind of have this real juxtaposition. Stephen's just paid this outrageous amount of of gold for these dolls and chamber pots, like you said that, and he's back on the barge, you know, headed out for the ship and reflecting upon his new poverty, this current sense of loss and and the kind of dismay that he has on the surface here. And he remembers how, you know, men in battles often suffer great wounds, but are hardly conscious of them, especially if they can't see them. They don't even realize they're there. And he says to himself, I shall dismiss it for a week or so. He had done this with various misfortunes, losses, and infidelities in the past. And although dreams sometimes undid him by night, and although there were other disadvantages, it still seemed to him the best way of dealing with a situation where distress and emotion were Mm -hmm. likely to get out of hand. Relative importance often proved less than he had supposed in the first confusion of mind. Wow. I'll tell you, this is, boy, this is that old British stiff upper lip. This reminds me of my father's mother uh, and and the way, you know, even at funerals, she would bring me in tow here. (laughs) Yeah, this, this really great stoicism and uh, you know, getting some perspective, I really admire it. And I, I suppose when you get this really oddly dislocating news, and you're thousands and thousands of miles and many months from home, you haven't really got the option of doing anything else. But to, to Stephen, to for him to level himself to it and just compose himself is really, really impressive. I'm, I'm not entirely sure then that his brain is completely composed when he makes the decision to wrap up not only the dolls but the chamber pots. Right. So back on the junk, he calls the girls over and gives them their presents. They thank him politely. They cherish the folded wrapping paper. But it was clear from their wandering look at the figures and their shocked, even indignant recognition of the garnished chamber pots that Stephen had not given the pleasure he had hoped for. Though with a certain lack of confidence, it is true. <laughs> so this great stoic, philosophic contemplative mind of Stephen Maturin's has a gap in his playbook there and that is being able to be the indulgent uh, father figure to little girls he's completely blown it here handing over the chamber pots maybe this is an omen Mike for how Stephen's going to be as a parent right 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 oh my gosh well Stephen heads to find Jack and he sees clearly that Mrs. Raffles invitation somehow has come ahead of him here everyone is elegantly dressed uh, Jack greets him with a severe tone. I think I think he's a little mad that Stephen slipped off the ship, you know, dressed so shabbily. But uh, O'Brien says, and also with an involuntary smile, and he's saying, and much credit have you spread on the service, no doubt. I wonder that they didn't set the dogs upon you. That, uh, so <laughs> he, he tells Stephen that Killick and Ahmed have laid out all his clothes. You know, they started the moment the invitation was received. And Jack says, you know, I'm going to call for the ship's barber. And Stephen says, hold on just a minute. And he tells Jack that Raffles has a 20-gun ship for him. And Jack is delighted. He also says that he had not told him that the Cornelie would be sailing the same course that they would through the Salababu Passage. And that he had asked Wanda to persuade the vizier not to sell them any of the sultan's gunpowder. 
and Jack's look of happiness disappears. You know, Jack, you know, Jack always wants that, you know, fair fight, if you will, that straight up fight, not a bunch of, he has a little ruse de guerre, but not send them in with no gunpowder. There's no honor in that. Well, Stephen said that, you know, at the time he did it, he thought they were going to be sailing a merchantman and didn't want her captured or blown up. However, the Cornelie, he says, probably has some powder from the fireworks manufacturers. And, and who knows, Wanda may not have been successful. And he decides not to tell Jack Raffle's comment about the ship's book at the moment. I think he's looking at Jack thinking, yeah, right. I think we'll just let him sit with this. And there's a pause and the monsoon rains start drumming down louder and louder as Jack says he's delighted about the governor's ship. And I'm I'm remembering that the monsoon rains were supposed to be kind of weeks away, you know, when that when the one you know crew member had said, oh, my gosh, we're going to be sailing this this new cutter over to uh, to Batavia. Oh, oh, we've got a fortnight for that. Well, in just a few days, the monsoons among us. So, you know, it makes me again wonder about these shifting tides and and, and the yep. way the yep. unexpected keeps happening here. Yeah. And they're, they're on the far side of the world in an environment that's not guaranteed to be kind of predictable or benign here. Right. Well, what is predictable is that Patrick O'Brien likes to give us a dinner. Right. So here we go for a dinner. Um, Raffles welcoming the officers with this really nice speech. He says that he wished there were more of them and that they were all whole. And that's a reference to Reed losing his arm. And he realizes that this is going to be a good speech for a committee, but not for sailors used to eating earlier. Sailors who were hungry and hot despite the rain that had soaked through their boat cloaks. And when he sees Reed turn pale at the comment about being whole, he skips five paragraphs and drinks to their happy return in ice-cold claret cup. And I think that's the moment when the sailors start to take him to their hearts. The dinner goes well, especially with the natural kindness of Mrs. Raffles, persuading anyone tired to take their leave anytime they want. This is a very, very kind, very genteel way to go about things, I think. And at the end, there's only Jack and Stephen and Fielding there to walk into the library after port and coffee and tea. Now, they get on to talking about this uh, ship that Jack's going to take over, that Stephen is going to hopefully invest in. Jack had already thanked Raffles for the ship, and we learned that its name in Dutch is Holligheid, which means equality in Dutch. There was an actual Dutch 68-gun third-rate captured by the British in 1797 and, re- and named HMS Gelikheit, as I think the, the British would have pronounced it. But this is a 20-gun ship. It's smaller. The sailors look over her plans, and meanwhile, Stephen and Raffles look over Stephen's surviving botanical specimens. And Stephen tells him about Kumai, tells him about this, this other Eden with all its animals, Raffles, who, as we remember in the book and in real life, is really quite the naturalist, would love to visit, but is too busy with all the rajas and sultans and feudatories that he has to deal with who are in the region trying to kill or depose each other. Looking over Stephen's specimens, Raffles tells him that he's meeting a man who has applied to be the government naturalist that afternoon, just before being called away to deal with trouble at the Chinese market. And, uh, Therefore, as Mr. Sowerby arrives, Stephen greets him and makes excuses on behalf of the governor. And Mike, I I had high hopes for Mr. Sowerby. I'm not entirely sure that this conversation is going to go completely smoothly, though. No, this this was fascinating. You know, Sowerby comes in, he's nervous, uh, and, and Stephen thinks to himself, he's clearly aggressive because of his nerves. And Stephen introduced himself. 
And Sowerby says, oh, you know, you must be a botanist. And Stephen says, well, I'm, I'm scarcely a botanist, though I did publish a little work on the phanerograms of upper ossuary, that is plants with visible sexual organs, that is flowers, <laughs> in, in, in a part of Ireland. And Sowerby says, well, you must be a naturalist. And Stephen agrees with that term. And Sowerby sits there biting his nails. And Stephen realizes that he must think that Stephen is a rival for his job, but he's being so disagreeable that Stephen doesn't correct his thinking. <laughs> and, and finally, Sowerby looks at Stephen and says, well, that a book on Stephen's subject would be a very small one indeed, because it would not take much of a book to deal with even the whole country of Ireland. Ooh. He says, he, yeah, I know. This is, it's like, whoa. He had heard of its poverty, but and as O'Brien writes, was astonished to find out how very poor it was, in fact, flora, fauna, and populace. Stephen says, well, not every island can boast the Arbutus and the Philorope. And he's trying to point out some of the natural wonders there. And Sowerby replies, it's not every island that can boast the Iceland moss or such hordes of barefoot, savage children in the capital city itself. Extreme poverty, he starts to say, and and <laughs> sorry, he was going to talk about the, you know the extreme poverty of birds, certain species of birds, but that word poverty all of a sudden you know brings right to the forefront of Stephen's mind his realization yeah. that his you know his bank is is gone under, and Stephen he's kind of all of a sudden caught up by that emotion, and he doesn't want to show how wounded and angered he is by this confluence of all of Sowerby's continued conversations. He, you know, he's talking about comparing Trinity College with Cambridge. He has a tirade of, yeah, about the disgraceful events of 1798. You know, we've talked about that often and about Romish superstition. So, you know, he's hearing all of these horrible words from Sowerby and thinking about his own new financial situation. Uh, so he's, he's delighted when Raffles finally returns and he says to the governor that he's glad that he is there to see this moment when he is about to crush his opponent. Uh, and he says, well, well, I mean, my conversation partner. And, and I'm going to have a quote from a purely English authority, the venerable Bede, uh, a saint, yeah, who wrote in the year 664 in his ecclesiastical history about the plague that it, and, and, and this is a quote from the book, depopulated the southern coast of England, and soon afterwards, extending into the province of the Northumbrians, ravaged the country far and near and destroyed a great multitude of men. It did no less harm in the island of Ireland, where many of the nobility and the lower ranks of the English nation, and Stephen coughs and goes on, where many of the nobility and the lower ranks of the English nation were at the time studying theology, or leading monastic lives, the Irishmen supplying them with food and furnishing them with books, and their teaching gratis pro deo. That is free for the sake of God. So Stephen is like, okay, here's one of your, you know, English saints. Here's a great man who wrote one of the revered histories of England talking about the Irish and their relationship with the English. So in your face here. Yeah. We're Happy for Stephen. I don't know if he's going to be happy in the long term because we know this comes a little bit from his background anxiety about the bank. Jack can perceive already that this is what comes out of the mouth is actually quite mild compared to what Stephen is feeling at this point. 
And uh, knowing what Stephen is capable of, therefore, Jack says, well quoted, Doctor. And Raffles joins in, says, that was a knockdown blow, my dear Maturin. One of those replies one usually makes the day after the event. What have you to say, Mr. Sowerby? And fortunately for the uh, for the occasion, Mr. Sowerby spots that he's put a foot wrong here. He says, I meant no national reflection, was unaware the gentleman came from Ireland, Whoa. begs his pardon for any involuntary offence, bowing as Jack and Stephen left. And Mike, we, we had a little hint here that this could have ended up in a physical challenge for Stephen. And we get a little bit of foreshadowing here of an encounter that's going to be much more brutal when we get to New South Wales itself. And in fact, Raffles helps us to look forward to that a little bit. He says that all's gone well at the market and apologises that Stephen had had to endure this particular uh, outburst from Sowerby. Raffles is concerned that Stephen, being surrounded by people who know where he's from and what he is worth, may be shocked by what he calls the illiberal opinions, opinions on poverty, literacy, popery, and the strong dislike of anyone connected to the 1798 Rising in New South Wales. Stephen said he had a glimpse of it when they touched at Sydney Cove in the Leopard, and he'd come to the conclusion, he says, at that point, that their officers were a parcel of beggars on horseback with all the froward arrogance and vanity the term implies. And Ruffles says, yeah, there hasn't been much improvement since then. Stephen notes that when the American colonialists broke away, many Englishmen, including James Boswell, although not Dr. Johnson, supported them. But when the Irish tried, no voice was heard in their favor. Although, Stephen points out, Dr. Johnson did warn the Irish, do not make any union with us, sir. We should unite with you only to rob you. Yeah. And, and Raffles jumps in and says, you know, I, I never did understand why Johnson bore that scrub Boswell and why Boswell wrote such a capital book about Johnson. <laughs> says, you know, I, I remember the passage where Johnson calls the Americans a race of convicts that ought to be thankful for anything we allow them short of hanging. And also where he says, I'm willing to love all mankind except an American. Doctor, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, Sorry to feel you sometimes. But he then quotes Miss Seward, who says about Johnson, Sir, this is an instance that we are always the most violent against those whom we have injured. And Raffles adds, from his perspective, perhaps the same violence is now in action against the Irish. So, you know, this, this fascinating thing, we've talked about Boswell and Johnson and the biography before. Anna Seward was an English romantic poet who grew up with Dr. Johnson kind of in her circle, literary circle, uh, you know, I think friends yeah. of family there. And she protested pretty strongly that in Boswell's biography that, you know, he really didn't make Johnson out to be the despot that he was in some interactions. She thought, you know, he had some great qualities, but also had some real faults and that Boswell had kind of skimmed over those, particularly some very specific conversations. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting insight into it's a, well, many things, may, maybe including how bullying comes about. We are most violent against those whom whom we have injured. Once we start to be violent, other people we kind of inure ourselves to it, and we think that they deserve more of it. It's pretty pretty grim side of human nature. It is. Yeah. So leaving Raffles, then Stephen catches the scent of guess what? Opium. Wow. <laughs> and uh, expresses to himself that he's glad that he didn't have any because he might have been tempted to break his resolution that he would manage without what he calls bottled fortitude. 
And with this news about the bank, Mike, I think he's in a state of mind where he might have been reaching for it in other times. He was concerned about sleeping because he'd been angry uh, and the possibility that near sleep would torment him with observations about his new poverty, his inability to oblige Diana, his inability to endow a chair of osteology, to maintain certain annuities that he promised, to make remote voyages in the surprise when peace comes. He had this whole list of things planned that were dependent on this fortune and now they might all be in the dust. He was also afraid that if he did sleep, he'd wake with even more of these kind of concerns uh, crowding in on his mind. So he's he's really worried about his his own mental wellness and about his ability to sleep here. It turns out, Mike, he was totally wrong. He'd been to sleep saying the Our Father. He woke relaxed. Uh, he woke up feeling happy that they have a ship and then realizing that Jack is there asking if he's awake. Bondon says Jack has got a little skiff. They can take over to see the Dutch sloop. And Stephen prepares to go. Jack suggests that a wash and a shave might be a good idea for Stephen before they have breakfast with the governor. And Stephen says, bah, you know, a, a wig covers a multitude of sins. And presumably he's thinking to himself, well, Mr. and Mrs. Raffles have seen me in my grime already here and they didn't turn a hair, so it's going to be fine. They take the canal, trying not to look into people's windows as they pass into the open bay. And as they're moving along there, Stephen falls asleep and wakes up again to see Jack staring at the ship, the new ship, with extreme concentration. Stephen follows Jack's gaze to the hull or the body of a dull brown, rather small ship and cries with a moment of great nautical penetration here, it has no masts. <laughs> and Jack explains that that's perfectly part of the plan. She'll be towed to the sheer hulk and we'll get plenty of masts. And Jack now turns to Bondon to have a bit of sailor talk and says, have you ever seen anything sweeter? And Bondon says, never, barring the surprise. Yeah, so this is pretty high praise here. You know, never a sweeter ship except the surprise. Well, they reach the ship. They're welcome aboard by the four people who are working on it. And hearing a cry from down below from one of their brides, I believe, Jack sends them down to eat breakfast. And Jack keeps repeating what a sweet little ship she is, commenting on the perfect hanging knees, calling her a little masterpiece. And then he turns to Stephen and he asks Stephen what title Fox tripped over during his first audience with the Sultan. And Stephen, being just really good at his melee, says, Kasagaran Marwa Bungi Buddha Bahasa Haburan Buha Pala. Bravo. Oh, that's it's it's almost like an Indonesian was here in the room with us, Mike. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. I, I dare say not. But Jack hears that and, and probably hears it much better than I said it. But you know, Jack, of course, like me, has no idea what it means. Says I I dare say. But it was your translation of it that I meant. What was the last piece? And Stephen says, nutmeg of consolation. Now, Ian, have you got a, a fuller translation here, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Thank you uh, along the way to the Patrick O'Brien Guide for the Perplexed by Anthony Garrett Brown, which you can find on the internet here. The first two phrases, the first phrase beginning in Kesegaran, Kesegaran Mawar, means, that one means rose of delight. So this name Kesegaran is also a, a synonym for a rose. Bunga Budi Bahasa, if that's the right pronunciation, means flower of courtesy 
And then the final little phrase there, Hiburan Buapala, means nutmeg of consolation. So this was in the series of very polite kind of fawning epithets to the Sultan, calling him Rose of Delight, Flower of Courtesy, and Nutmeg of Consolation. And it was this nice little little tag here that uh, that Jack's uh, lit upon. Yeah, Jack says, that's it. Those were the very words hanging there in the back of my mind. Oh, what a glorious name for a tight, sweet, newly coppered, broad, buttock little ship, a solace to any man's heart. The nutmeg for daily use of consolation for official papers. Dear nutmeg, what joy. End of chapter three. (laughs) Now we've got a story. Now we've got not only sailors and a mission and some adversaries we've got a ship for them as well yeah it, I, I think like you say Ian, we're about to take off after a couple of really odd and interesting chapters here even this one where you know i'm still scratching my head over steven's final interactions with the chinese girls and the dolls and the chamber pots and that run-in with mr sowerby and and you know kind of restoring this anti-irish sentiment pot and then finding Cassagarin's name in that line, I'm kind of glad that we know who we're perhaps up against, at least in the near term. And we might have a ship, one that we've heard is no match for, perhaps to take us out for a direct showdown, right? Yeah. So fr- from the strictly Jack Aubrey perspective of having the resources and the will and the opportunity to go out and find an adversary and face them down, this is sounding great. This is happy places for all of us as readers, I think. But from the Stephen Maturin perspective, it's not going well. He's had another one of these great setbacks. He's broke. He seems outwardly to be taking it all well. But what with what's going on at home, he's only just got back together with Diane. He's got a daughter on the way. This can't be good news. And, and meanwhile, what about Tom Pullings? What about the surprise? Are we ever going to see her again? Are we ever going to see Pullings and the ship's company again? It's kind of interesting that Jack is all about love at first sight with the nutmeg with the new ship. Right. And Bonin is saying, yeah, she's the sweetest of all, but she's no surprise. Right, right. Well, I guess there's only one thing for it to find out what happens next. Ian, what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart. favorite novelist patrick o'brien you're with mike and ian as we plunge ahead in the nutmeg of consolidation oh, <laughs> oh sam all right just shoot me now yeah sunday morning <laughs>